You know, we've all experienced times in life when things don't go according to plan. I'm sure you've been there. Times when expectations, uh, hopes, and dreams have just been shattered. Maybe you grew up wanting the happy marriage. You know, two or three kids and oh, the white picket fence. But things didn't go exactly how you thought they would. You know, today, almost 50% of marriages in the United States end in divorce. And the percentage for Christians is lower, but not by much. It hovers around 30%. Our loved ones get sick. The children struggle. You didn't get into the college you worked so hard for. Uh, someone else got the job that you wanted. Uh, your car broke down in the middle of that much-needed family vacation. Uh, your bank account seems to be low all the time, and life can be hard. We've all experienced times when things don't go according to plan. John the Baptist, uh, Jesus' cousin, and the man God chose to prepare the way for the Messiah, he experienced a really challenging season toward the end of his life. And his experience is recorded for us in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, uh, verses 18 through 35. So as a favor to his wife Herodias, uh, Herod Antipas had John arrested and then thrown in prison. Uh, you see, John publicly rebuked Herod for marrying Herodias, who was, uh, Herod, who was uh, Herod's brother's wife. This was a messy family situation. Uh, John the Baptist knew this was sinful in God's eyes, and uh, he rebuked Herod for this, and Herod threw him in prison for it. You know, for someone who was living in the wilderness, enjoyed the outdoors, uh, being confined to a small prison cell must have been extremely difficult for John. This passage, though, I think is another great example of Jesus' compassion and God's faithfulness, His provision in our lives. It's also a reminder to us that we need to examine our own lives and our own motives for how and why we follow Jesus. That's a question I'm going to ask you today. Why do you follow Jesus? Do we try and dictate our own terms of service for what it means to be a Christian? Or are we completely surrendered to God by submitting to His plan and His purpose for our lives? It's a lengthier passage that we're going to look at today, so I've decided to break it down into three parts. I'm going to read each part. I'll provide some context and then uh, hopefully be able to share some clear, uh, practical application uh, for how we can apply these truths to our lives Along the way. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 18 through 35. We're going to start with verses 18 through 25. That's the first section. But before we dive in, let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I, I ask that you would bless our time uh, together today, um, that you would uh, make clear the truths of your word, that we would not just be hearers, but we would be doers of your word. That, Holy Spirit, you would help us to apply these truths to our lives and teach us what it means to uh, learn from Jesus, to live like Jesus. Um, Lord, I thank you for the example of the um, you know, hundreds and thousands of men and women who've gone before us, who have been a solid example of what it means to follow Jesus, especially in difficult seasons. And we're going to look at one of those today in John the Baptist. And so, Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. And I thank you most, most of all for your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So Luke chapter 7, the first section we're going to look at is verses 18 through 23. Um, This is a a text I've been very excited to share with you today, uh, and partially because as I was studying it this week, uh, God was just doing a number in my life and uh, doing a work in my life. So I'm excited to see what he does in yours. So beginning in verse 18, it says, The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him that John the Baptist sent us to ask, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, their illnesses, and evil spirits. And he restored sight to many who were blind. And then he told John's disciples, Go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And then he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. So a little bit of context here. Uh, John was in prison. So his disciples kept him updated about everything that Jesus was doing. And having heard the reports, John decided to send two of these disciples to Jesus with a very important question. Here's the question. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah that we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? I think it's important that we talk about why John would ask this question. Uh, John knew He knew that he was the forerunner to Jesus, the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah's ministry. John's purpose in life, the reason that he was born, was instilled in him since he was a child. You think back to what we read early on in Luke's gospel and in other other gospels. um, John witnessed a lot of the things that that Jesus did in his ministry. You go all the way back to the Old Testament. um, Isaiah wrote about John like 700 years before he was even born, about how John would be the voice shouting in the wilderness, preparing people for Jesus. As an adult, when John saw Jesus walking toward him, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John had the privilege of baptizing Jesus, even though he didn't want to. He saw the heavens open up and the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus in the form of a dove. He witnessed all of these things. He heard God's voice from heaven saying about Jesus, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. So John knew all of these things. He, he witnessed and experienced all of these, say, these things. So why did he need to send two of his disciples to ask if Jesus really was the Messiah? I think it's because being in prison... It's safe to say that things were not going exactly according to John's plans. After all, he was supposed to be outside, in the wilderness, preparing the way for Jesus, not sitting in a prison cell awaiting his sentence. Even though this was John the Baptist that we're talking about, he was having some doubts. You know, it's not unusual for great spiritual leaders to have their days of doubts and uncertainties. Your favorite preachers that you listen to on the radio have had their days of doubts. I can, I can say pretty confidently that every pastor shepherding a congregation here in La Crosse County has had their days of doubts. I don't consider myself a great spiritual leader, but friends, as your pastor, I've had days of doubts. 
We know that Moses was ready to throw in the towel on one occasion. You go back to Numbers chapter 11, we read all about it. And so we're Elijah and Jeremiah, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, a man who wrote over two-thirds of the New Testament. He wrote about being crushed and overwhelmed beyond his ability to endure. He couldn't keep going in his own strength. And that's just a reminder to us today that experiencing doubt is a normal part of being a Christian. It's a normal part of being a Christian. Now, there is a difference between doubt and unbelief. We've talked about this many times, but let me give you just a quick refresher. Doubt is a matter of the mind. It's not understanding what God is doing or why he's doing it. You know, and if that's the case, I think that's, you know, several times throughout our lives. God, why are you doing what you're doing? Unbelief is different. Unbelief is a matter of the will. So where doubt is a matter of the mind, unbelief is a matter of the will. It's refusing to believe God's word, and it's choosing to not obey what he tells you to do. That's the difference. Oswald Chambers, uh, the early 20th century Scottish preacher, he once said that doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. He knew that we all experience doubt. And not only is doubt not always a bad thing, but I've seen in my own life and in the stories of God's word and the lives of other people how God can get a hold of a person's doubt and turn it into even greater faith. In John's case, his question for Jesus was not born out of willful disobedience or unbelief, but of doubt that was caused by physical and emotional strain in his life. Now, Jesus' response to his question, I think, is just awesome. Before we actually get to his response, I want to read the verse that comes right before it. Verse 21 tells us that at that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. So while John was in prison, um, actually fulfilling God's purpose, sometimes we're fulfilling God's purpose, and uh, we don't like the situation. We don't like the scenario, but that's what John was doing. He was fulfilling God's purpose. So while he was fulfilling God's purpose within a prison cell, Jesus was fulfilling his father's purpose in the wilderness. How Jesus answered the question reminds us of his love and his compassion. See, he didn't choose to chastise John for having doubts. He simply gave him the encouragement that he needed to keep going. Look with me to verse 22. And then he told John's disciples, go back and tell John, Go back to John and tell him that what you have seen and heard, the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. So the miracles that Jesus performed were the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy. Isaiah wrote about this in Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6, said, and when he comes, meaning the Messiah, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water, uh, and streams will water the wasteland. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Jesus was saying he was doing? In Isaiah 61 verse 1, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me. To bring good news to the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. Again, these are messianic prophecies talking about the Messiah 700 years before he was born. 
So Jesus reassured John that he was, in fact, fulfilling all the promises that were given to God's people about the Messiah. He was, he was doing it. And the evidence was in his actions. His answer was proof that he's the one who was to come. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the conclusion of Jesus' answer, I think, is just as important as the good works that he was doing. In verse 23, Jesus said that God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. This was a subtle warning. It was a warning to John and for everyone who was learning about Jesus, maybe for the first time. It was a warning to not be tripped up by the way Jesus was carrying out his mission. You see, how Jesus did things didn't exactly match up with most of the Jewish religious leaders' predictions. They thought the Messiah would be a military might who would overthrow the Roman government, uh, that he would come during a time of economic prosperity, that he wouldn't come from a place like Nazareth. And one person said, nothing good comes from Nazareth. <laughs> well, apparently, things, do good, things that are good do come from Nazareth. They thought Jesus or the Messiah would come from a family of wealth and prosperity, but that's not the case. I think Jesus' response here is an important lesson to us. He, he says, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. What is he saying? Well, here it is. Friends, don't have the wrong expectations about who Jesus is and what he will do. Don't have the wrong expectations about who Jesus is and what he will do. Many people miss Jesus today in the same way the religious leaders miss Jesus in the first century because they have the wrong expectations about him. People say things like, well, if there really is a God, then why is there war? If there really is a God, why do people suffer? If there really is a God, why doesn't God just intervene against evil? Their assumption is that if Jesus is who they think that he is, then he would just conquer all of these things. He would intervene and, and do away with all of these things right now. They have a misunderstanding about and wrong expectations about who Jesus is. Others have different false expectations that, you know, if I follow Jesus, does that mean that I'm never going to have hard times anymore? If I follow Jesus, does that mean my bank account's always going to be full? If I follow Jesus, is my health going to stay good until it's not? <laughs> Friends, we must be careful that we don't place man-made expectations on who we think Jesus is or what he will do. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, says that my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. So are your thoughts like God's thoughts? No. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This is a grave sin of our generation is that we try to put God into a box and make him be anything and everything that we think he should be. Friends, do you want to know how you can have the right expectations about Jesus? Immerse yourself in God's word. Immerse yourself in God's word. Uh, although your Bible is divided into 66 books with a total of 1,189 chapters, it's really just one book that tells one consistent story about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. If you want to have the right expectations about who Jesus is, 
And what God is, is about, immerse yourself in God's word. Let's look at the second section of scripture together. Luke 7, 24 through 30. After John's disciples left, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No. People who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes. And he's more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way before you. And I love verse 28. He says, I tell, I tell you, of all who ever lived, everybody who's ever lived, none is greater than John. Yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. When they heard this, all of the people, even the tax collectors, agreed that God's way was right, for they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees, the experts in religious law, rejected God's plan for them, for they had refused John's baptism. So after Jesus sent John's disciples back to him, remember John is in prison, Jesus started preaching about John to the crowds. He asked his listeners, he asked his listeners what they expected to see when they went into the wilderness to see John and to hear him preach. You know, did you think you were going to find a pushover who could be swayed by the culture? Is that the man you thought John was? Did you think you were going to find someone living in luxury? I mean, we have to remember John's diet consisted of locusts and honey. Not exactly an ideal diet for someone born into a wealthy family. Jesus knew the people were looking for a prophet when they went out to meet John and to listen to his, his messages. So Jesus took it a step further with them. He took the conversation further. He said not only was John a great prophet, but he was also the greatest person who ever lived, other than Jesus, of course. He told the crowd that beside himself, John was the greatest person to ever walk the earth. Now this is, this is a bold thing to say. All right, this is one of those statements that divides a crowd. Right? We don't need to skip over this. And a lot of what Jesus said kind of divided the crowd. We see that a lot. See, after all, I mean, Abraham, what about Abraham? He was considered the greatest as the father of the nation. You have David, who was considered the greatest king uh, that Israel ever had. God said he was a man after his own heart. Moses was great because he led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And then you have Elijah, who was the great prophet who performed amazing miracles. Yet Jesus said that John was greater than all of these people. And if Jesus said it, it must be right. Now we need to carefully consider what Jesus said in the latter part of verse 28. He says, not only is John the greatest person Ever walk the earth, the greatest person who ever lived. But listen to this. This is, this is what trips people up. He says, yet even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. So in other words, John was the greatest person to ever walk the earth besides Jesus. But if you're in God's kingdom, if you've been adopted into God's family, then you are greater than John. The theologians and commentators have pulled their hair out trying to figure out what did Jesus mean when he said this. Are you saying that Christians today, like people who are in Christ, are better than John was? 
What does it mean that the least in, in the kingdom of God is greater than John? I, I think it's safe to say, like, I, I struggled with this this week. I talked to my wife about it quite a bit and uh, read several commentaries and, and finally landed on what I believe is, is right and what Jesus was saying. I believe that Jesus was teaching his listeners about how there is a difference between our temporal earthly calling and our eternal spiritual reality. In other words, no matter how great your earthly calling might be, the the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do, your eternal place in God's kingdom is far greater. That's the prize. You see, John had the privilege and the responsibility of preparing the way for the Messiah. There really is no greater earthly calling outside of the mission that God gave to his son, Jesus. But being adopted into God's family and spending eternity in God's presence is far greater than anything that we can do on earth. So even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than John's ministry on earth. It's that comparison between our temporal earthly calling and our eternal spiritual reality. Do you understand how great it is to be in a relationship with Jesus and to belong to God's family? Uh, Your position in Christ is so privileged and so great that your relationship with God is as precious as the greatest prophets of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. That your relationship with God is as precious as the greatest prophets who've walked the earth. Have you thanked God lately? Have you thanked him for his free gift of grace, for his forgiveness, for his salvation, for adopting you into his forever family? When the crowd heard these words, they all agreed that God's way is the right way. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, you know, the so-called experts, I get weary the older I get of someone who kind of labels themselves an expert. I just do, because anytime we read through God's word and we see the people who labeled themselves experts, man, they were the ones in the wrong. I'd like to think that as followers of Jesus, we're always learning, we're always growing. That's really what it means to be a disciple, is that we're learners. We don't, we don't arrive in this life. And so these men, these experts in the law, they continued to reject God's plan for his people. And what what needed to happen is they needed to believe. They needed to repent and to be baptized, but their hearts were hard. And sadly, you know, some things never change. There are roughly 80,000 people, give or take, in La Crosse County who are unchurched. And we live in a society that's largely that largely rejects God's plan and his purpose for their lives. People refuse to believe that they're living in sin and that they need to be saved. That that word is is not even politically correct to say. It's hard work. But we are the workers God wants to use to send out into the fields to share his good news of salvation with the lost. So let me remind you today that the harvest is plentiful. There are thousands of people who need Jesus in this community, but the workers are few. We need to pray. We need to be a praying church that God would, who is in charge of the harvest, would raise up more workers. And it starts right here. It starts, you know, we 
Talk about Father's Day and how men are called to be the spiritual leaders of their homes. It starts in the home. We need to be the men that God has called us to be, to say yes to the things that that God wants us to say yes to and no to the things that he doesn't. We need to be the examples in our places of work, to be a light in a very dark place. Kids, you're never too young to make a difference for Jesus. In your school, as you walk the hallways and you hear things and you see things, be the exception. Be the difference for Christ. The harvest is plentiful. I think that's one of the best places to reach people for Jesus is with our young people in their schools. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. God wants to get a hold of your life and use you in a big way. These religious leaders, they rejected God's plan. But in the final section here, Jesus pulls everything together. We see this in verses 31 through 35. Jesus gets real with them. I love this text. He says, to what can I compare the people of this generation? He's not saying this behind closed doors. He's saying this to their face. Jesus asked them this question. How can I describe them? And then he describes them. They're like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends. We played wedding songs and you didn't dance. So we played funeral songs and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. So Jesus concluded this particular time of teaching by telling a parable, and a parable is an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning for our lives. He concludes by telling a parable that explained the spiritual condition of the people that he was talking to, to to his generation. And I don't think much has changed today. He said they were like children, but not in a good way. We love children. We want more children running around the halls of our church. We, We love kids, but he's saying they're like children, but not in a good way. They're like immature children who like to complain all the time when they couldn't get the other children to do what they wanted. You know, if you're a parent, you understand this. We've all seen our younger kids cry and complain when their friends didn't go along with what they told them they wanted to do. And you got to intervene and step in and say, here's the proper way to respond. You know, you can't control what your friend says, but you can control what you say. Well, Jesus said they're like children playing a game in the public square. They complained to their friends. We played wedding songs and you didn't dance. We played funeral songs. And you didn't weep. You know, I read this passage and I just think the world that we live in, the culture that we're a part of, outside of Christ, people are just playing a game. They're just going through the motions. And it's heartbreaking because we know as followers of Jesus what it means to have joy in Christ and what it means to have that hope of eternity that's secure in Christ. But we're looking out at a society that desperately needs Jesus. He's saying here that they were complaining like, like children. They, they were saying, you didn't play by our rules. You didn't fit our expectations. You didn't do what I wanted to do. And Jesus used this parable to describe the people's false criticisms of John and himself. The people knew that John was a prophet that God had sent, but John didn't fit their narrative. You see, he didn't eat their bread and drink their wine. They said he was possessed by a demon. You didn't do what we wanted you to do, John, so you must be wrong. Jesus, on the other hand, did 
eat their bread and drink their wine, but they called him a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So the point here, and this is huge, you see, it didn't matter how the messenger came. They had already decided that they were going to reject the messenger and the message. They had already decided in their heart. And that's why when you get to passages like Jesus tells his disciples to go from place to place and tell people about the good news of the kingdom of God and that if they don't receive you and they don't listen to it, just shake the dust off your feet and keep moving. He's not saying be hateful to the people around you. Love the people. Serve the people. Share Christ with the people. But sometimes they've already decided in their heart that they're going to reject the message and the messenger. doesn't matter who says it or how they say it. Their hearts are hard. And again, we need to continue to pray for people. We need to pray that God would raise up workers to be sent out into the fields because the harvest is plentiful. But this is heartbreaking. Rather than listening to God's messengers, they wanted to tell the messengers what to do. See, they had their own expectations and they wanted things done their way. And sometimes we do this in the church. We think that church should be done a certain way. And a lot of times it's based on like man-made traditions. And then we get really riled up whenever those traditions aren't happening anymore. But when you go to scripture, if, like, if you were to be on a desert island by yourself with the word of God, there's some things that we do in church that you just wouldn't see. And we need to come back to the word. As to what it means to be followers of Jesus and what it means to be the church. It raises some important questions for us today. I think one, are we complaining or are we following? We've talked about what it means to be a chronic complainer. Let me just tell you that when I, when I know people who are chronic complainers, they're never happy. They're never joyful. They don't know the joy of the Lord. Because complaining is the opposite of gratitude. And we're supposed to be people of gratitude. Another question is, do we try and, and dictate our own terms of service or do we submit our lives to God in his terms? You know, too often we want God to follow our rules. We, we obey God's word when we agree with it. Maybe when it aligns with our political view. We gather for worship when it's convenient. We serve if it's something that we want to do. And we only spend time with people who are easy to be around. But when we think and act like this, we're just like the people that Jesus was addressing, these experts in religious law, these religious leaders that missed the mark. And it sounds a little bit harsh, but it's a wonderful truth, and I need to remind us today that God does not submit to us. We are called to submit to him. God does not submit to us. We are called to submit to him. Jesus was criticized by these religious leaders for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But what the crowds and, and the religious leaders meant as criticism, Jesus took as a compliment. And what a compliment it was. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He spent a lot of his time with the kinds of people that others reject. Instead of spending his time with the religious elite, he spent his time with the common people of his day, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And I would say as it relates to our purpose in life, our overarching purpose to make disciples who can make more disciples, the Great Commission, as it relates to that, if we are going to be effective in our mission of making more and better disciples, we need to be more like Jesus. We cannot effectively teach at a distance. I think that's what we try to do a lot of the times. 
with our megaphone, with our signs that we spend hours on with words on it and all kinds of slogans and bumper stickers and phrases. We can't teach at a distance. You know, having an online service is wonderful. I think that's a great tool. That's what it is. It's a tool. We have an updated website. I think that's great. And in the next week, you're going to see some updated staff photos. You get to see my pretty face on our website a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) These things are just tools, though. It's not enough. It's not enough. We need to get to know the community that we're a part of. Get to know the people, their circumstances, and teach them what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And this must be done on God's terms and in his way, not our own. And we look at a lengthier passage like this. There's a lot to take in. I debated breaking this down, but we're only in Luke chapter 7, and we're going to go through the whole gospel. And, you know, I don't want to be retiring, and we're just at the end of Luke So I want to encourage you with a couple of things today. The first encouragement is to go home and reread this text. Luke 7, 18 through 38. Reread this. And as you do, I want you to examine your own life. As hard as it is, I don't want you to think about other people. Well, you know, Miss Susie in the front row doesn't do this, and so she needs to get her life together. No, there's no one in the front row, so that's why I chose that name in this location (laughs) safely. It was a safe bet. (laughs) That was one of those on-the-fly things. I could have messed that up. But examine your own life. Pray about the truths that we've talked about today. You know, do you have a scriptural understanding and an expectation of who Jesus is and what he came to do? Are you dictating your own terms of service or are you completely surrendered to God? And are you a friend of sinners? Are you a friend of sinners? And if not, how can you take that first step when it comes to reaching out to the lost in your own circle of influence?